Welcome to Transformed by Grace, an in-depth Bible study of God's Word, presented by the Berean Bible Society. Join us each time on this station as Pastor Kevin brings the transforming message of God's grace revealed through the Holy Scriptures. Helicopter pilot Ian McConnell, along with the rest of his air station crew, was summoned at 4 a.m. on the morning of August 30, 2005, to the Coast Guard Aviation Training Center in Mobile, Alabama. The center soon became one of the first bases of operations for Hurricane Katrina relief. McConnell and his crew were told to keep five H-60 helicopters airborne on missions at all times around the clock. The first airborne relief teams arrived in the affected areas before any news crews and were completely unprepared for the devastation they saw. A train track running parallel to the ocean had been pushed inland 15 feet off its gravel bed. A houseboat was floating down U.S. Highway 90. The entire city of New Orleans stood underwater. McConnell's crew got right to work, airlifting stranded people from the rooftops and out of the windows and delivering them to the Superdome helipad. To their chagrin, however, they were only able to help a relatively few amount of survivors. In an interview, McConnell shared why. On our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people, three dogs, and a cat. On the fourth mission, to our great frustration, we saved no one but not for lack of trying. The dozens we attempted to rescue refused pickup. Some people told us to simply bring them food and water. You are trying to live in unhealthy conditions and the water will stay high for a long time, we warned them. And still they refused. He said, I felt frustrated and angry since we had used up precious time and fuel and had put ourselves at risk during each rescue attempt. I felt like they were ungrateful. But in truth, they did not know how desperate their situation was. There is a rescue from sin in the lake of fire available for every person through the cross of Christ. But like those who refused to be picked up after Hurricane Katrina, many do not know how desperate their situation is spiritually, and they refuse the good news and the gospel and the rescue. Knowing how desperate people's situation is outside of Christ drove the Apostle Paul all over the world to share the gospel of the grace of God and reach souls in danger of eternal judgment. This often led to revival in the areas he went, such as in Thessalonica. Acts 17, verses 1 to 3 read, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. We are in the midst of Paul's second apostolic journey here in Acts 17. Paul had just left Philippi after being unjustly beaten and imprisoned there. Leaving Philippi, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then they came to Thessalonica. 
They used the important highway and great military road called the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatian Way, to go to Thessalonica. As Paul left Philippi with Silas and Timothy, they traveled on the Ignatian Way 33 miles to Amphipolis. From, from Amphipolis, they traveled 30 miles to Apollonia. And then from Apollonia, they traveled 37 miles to Thessalonica. This was a grand total of 100 miles from Philippi. And Paul traveled all these miles, likely still in pain, severe pain, after being recently beaten with rods in Philippi. Thessalonica was the most important city in the province of Macedonia and was its capital. It had an estimated population of 200,000 people. It was a major port on the Aegean Sea and an important commercial center in Paul's day. As such, it was a strategic place for the evangelization of Macedonia. And though, as we see here in verse 1, Paul did not stop in Amphipolis and Apollonia, because of the zeal of the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7-8 teaches that they sounded out the word of the Lord, and their faith toward God spread throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Thus, the Thessalonians, who were won to Christ by Paul later, were a witness to and evangelized those in Amphipolis and Apollonia and Macedonia later. Arriving in Thessalonica, as was his custom when entering a new city, Paul found a synagogue of the Jews. Here Paul would find an audience of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And we see the presence of devout Greeks at this synagogue in verse 4. And following his time in Philippi, Thessalonica was now the second place in Europe where the gospel of the grace of God was proclaimed. Paul went in unto them at the synagogue, and for three Sabbath days, or three weeks, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. The word translated as reasoned is where we get our English word dialogue. Paul had a dialogue with the Jews from the scriptures. It was not a formal sermon, but discussion where there were questions and answers. Paul gave them the facts, he gave them the truth, and he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to work and apply his revelation from his word. And he answered their questions and doubts and discussed the truth with them. He was reaching for their minds and for their hearts. And by this reasoning out of the Scriptures, you find that proper interpretation, proper understanding of the word, played a key role in Paul's message and ministry. And we need to follow that example in the church today as the scriptures need to be front and center and faithfully opened, taught, expounded, and discussed so people can understand its meaning and be rooted and grounded in the truth. For three Saturdays, Paul made known Christ crucified and risen from the dead to the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in that synagogue. As he did so, verse 3 says, Paul was opening and alleging. Opening speaks of opening their minds to cause to understand or opening up the meaning of the scriptures. Paul took the time to make sure his listeners clearly understood what he was saying. Alleging means to set before to present persuasive evidence from the scriptures. Paul presented compelling evidence from the Word regarding the Messiah. 
Paul's Jewish hearers needed to be shown and convinced that their scriptures taught that the Messiah would and would suffer and die and rise from the dead because the common Jewish view of the Messiah was that of his second coming, not his first. They looked for the Messiah to come as a conquering political ruler who would defeat Israel's enemies and usher in a kingdom of peace and righteousness. It seemed inconceivable to them that a Messiah could die at the hands of his enemies. But Paul convincingly showed them from Scripture that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the word predicted about the Messiah and Christ must needs. He had to first suffer, die, and rise again. Paul used the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus of Nazareth matched the description the prophets painted of the Messiah down to the last detail. And from places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this all demonstrated that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, Paul said, is Christ, or Messiah. Paul was simply establishing the identity of Christ so that they might come to trust in Him. This was the natural point of contact and logical place of beginning. After making his opening arguments from the Old Testament, we know that Paul went on, went on to reason and argue that our Lord Jesus Christ not only died, He died for us, as he wrote, these believers, these same believers in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, and that we are saved if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, as he wrote in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. We know he preached these things in Thessalonica, for these are things that he reminds the Thessalonians of in his epistle that he wrote to them shortly after leaving their city. Pastor Cornelius R. Stam also states this, in this part of Acts, we have a transition from the old program to the new. The old gradually disappears as the new takes its place. It is perfectly natural, therefore, to find Paul here and elsewhere in the Acts record proving to the Jews by the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, that some may be one to trust in Him, and that those who join the nation in refusing to do so may be Whole, left wholly without excuse as God continued to set the nation aside. This is where Paul had to begin. For if the Jesus who had been crucified was not the Messiah, he was an imposter and surely could not be the dispenser of grace to a lost world, nor the head of the body of Christ. We'll be returning to the program in just a minute. But first, we'd like to take this time to thank you, our partners, for making these programs possible. If you would like to access our library of helpful Bible study tools, go to BereanBibleSociety.org. Thessalonians is a hardcover, 182-page commentary written by Pastor Cornelius R. Stamp and covers both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. In these days of widespread trouble and unrest, it is important to understand the distinction between our Lord's coming to take His own out of the world at the close of the dispensation of grace and His subsequent return to earth to judge and reign. In this work, Pastor Stamp shows how consistently, clearly, and emphatically 
These letters teach the rapture of the members of Christ's body to be with Him before the prophesied tribulation begins. To order your copy, contact the Berean Bible Society for pricing and availability at 262-255-4750 or visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. To receive our free full-color 32-page monthly magazine, The Berean Searchlight, call 262-255-4750 or subscribe online at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. Thank you again for your generous gifts. And now, back to the teaching with Pastor Kevin. Acts 17, verses 4 and 5 read, And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Paul's convincing argument from Scripture, coupled with the Holy Spirit working through his word, led to some of the Jews to be persuaded and believe. They believed that Jesus was the Christ and the Savior. They believed that he died for them and rose again. Some of the Jews believed, but the majority stayed in their unbelief. And of these Jews that believed, they consorted or they joined, associated with Paul and Silas, They took their place with Paul and Silas as believers in Jesus Christ. And not only did they, but of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. The majority of those who believed in Thessalonica were Gentiles. Many God-fearing Greeks from the synagogue were saved, and also many pagan Greeks believed in Thessalonica. We see that by how Paul wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. As a result of three weeks ministry, Paul saw a large number of people believe and a revival took place in Thessalonica with a throng of Greeks, both God-fearing and pagan, some Jews, and not a few of the leading prominent women of the city getting saved. However, this revival did not bring joy to everybody. The Jews, which did not believe Paul's message concerning Christ and the gospel, moved with envy. The word envy here means to be heated or to boil with envy, hatred, and anger. They hated Jesus Christ. They hated Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They hated the gospel of grace, and they hated all those who believed it. It made their blood boil to see so many respond to Paul's message about Christ and believe it. It was like this with the unbelieving Jews in Antioch earlier in Acts 13.45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Their hatred and envy provoked the unbelieving Jews to take decisive action. Thus, they recruited certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Breaking that phrase down in the original Greek, it literally means some evil men from the marketplace. The baser sort literally means market loungers. They were idle men who lounged around the agora or the marketplace in the city and were open to and were looking for trouble. 
They were overtly evil men with malignant character. They were the type of men who would not hesitate to inflict harm on another. The Jews knew exactly what they were doing in recruiting these men. With these men, the Jews formed a mob and incited a riot and set all the city in an uproar. They stirred and riled up the residents of the city. And many were probably intimidated to join the the mob by these wicked men from the marketplace. All the people then traveled as a mob to the house of Jason with hostile intent to assault his house and attack it. Jason was a new believer in Thessalonica, and his house was where Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been staying as guests. It's also possible that his house is where the newly formed church was meeting. They went to Jason's house looking for Paul and his co-laborers, and they sought to bring them out to the people. The mob intended to drag Paul, Silas, and Timothy before the people, that is, the city assembly. Acts 17, verses 6 to 9 read, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. John Phillips wrote, Wherever Paul went, things happened. Souls were saved. People took sides. Feelings were stirred. Decisions were made. The lines were drawn. Paul did not slip into town, hold a few quiet meetings, enjoy some good home cooking, and slip back out of town again without the city knowing or caring that the gospel had been preached at all. Everybody knew when Paul came to town. Passions were stirred. Things happened. The place was turned upside down. We see these very things in the account of Paul in Thessalonica in Acts 17. Verse 6 says, And when they found them not, the word found implies that they did a thorough search for them at Jason's home. They looked, and looked hard, but to no avail. Paul and his associates were not to be found. God had providentially protected them from this mob. When the Jews, the mob, and the evil men from the marketplace did not find Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they attacked Jason instead and some of the fellow believers who were with him, and they drew them under the rulers of the city. And that word drew means that they didn't do this politely. They dragged Jason and the other believers through the streets of Thessalonica. This word also tells us that Jason did not volunteer to go with the mob and stand before the rulers. He was not asked to go. He was made to go. They were brought under the rulers of the city, or the polytarchs, who were chief magistrates of the city. They performed administrative and executive functions, as well as they exercised judicial authority. Standing before the polytarchs, or the chief magistrates, with Jason and the other believers, the mob made two accusations. First, they cried out that these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received into his home. Without meaning to, they paid a genuine tribute 
in the greatest of compliments to Paul, Silas, and Timothy when they described them as men who had turned the world upside down. But how can a few men turn the world upside down? All they did was bring good news to others. They had no power in themselves, but they had a message of a Savior who had come to die for our sins and rise again from the dead. And all they did was talk about Christ wherever they went. And because of people believing in Christ, because of people being given true hope and joy and being transformed by the Savior, the world was turned upside down. And as it's been said, God willing and blessing, people would say such things about the effectiveness of Christians today. There's a story told of an English evangelist who took this text for one of his open-air sermons. He began by saying, First, the world is wrong side up. Second, the world must be turned upside down. Third, we are the ones to set it right. This is really the purpose of the gospel. It is God's way of making things right through Christ. This team of men had quite a testimony. So far, they had only been to Philippi in Macedonia, which was located a hundred miles away, and already they had the reputation of turning the world upside down. The irony is that these men of God, who were boldly and faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ, they were actually turning the world right side up. When you yourself are upside down, the other direction appears to be upside down. When sin and the curse entered the world, the world was instantly turned upside down. Sin is deceiving, and unbelievers think their version of the world is correct and right side up, when in fact it is upside down in the sight of a holy and righteous God. The world thinking the world is right side up is due to the fact, as Ephesians 4.18 puts it, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. But when we trust the gospel, now we see, and we see things clearly and differently from the world. Now the word of God changes our thinking and our values to be in line with God. Thus the world sees believers as strange, different, and upside down, when in truth we have been turned right side up. The gospel was revolutionizing and upsetting the world as the city of the Thessalonians knew it, but it was doing so in the best of ways, because of those who received Christ's life by faith and were now living by the word of God. Before the magistrates, this turning the world upside down accusation was a vague charge of Jason harboring fugitives who were troublemakers that were disturbing the peace and were a threat to city order. And that is a hypocritical charge when this mob was the true troublemakers who had just created a great disturbance in the city. Their second accusation was more specific and serious. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, 
one Jesus. The Jews charged these all, or Paul, Silas, Timothy, Jason, and all believers, with subversive sedition, treason, and rebellion against the Roman emperor of undermining the decrees of Caesar and supporting a rival king. To acknowledge any other king than Caesar was one of the most serious crimes in the Roman Empire. But as far as believers saying that there is another king, one Jesus, they would have had to say, guilty as charged. We do believe that Jesus is the king. For the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ is her long-promised king who will reign over her and his kingdom on earth. And while primarily Christ's office today is as the head of the body of Christ, Paul did teach that Jesus was the king as well, as he wrote Timothy that Christ is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. Christ rules and reigns over all creation, and as king and lord, he has the right to rule over us, his people. And as far as Caesar and Christ go, Caesar wasn't the kind of king that Christ is. Caesar was just a man, a temporal king of a temporal empire. Christ is 100% God, 100% man, an eternal king of an eternal kingdom. And unlike any of the kings of this world, our Savior, in grace, stooped low, became a servant, that in grace He might lift us high. The people of the city and the magistrates were troubled by these reports about treason. Thus, the magistrates required Jason and those with him to pay a pledge, or a security deposit, literally, to guarantee against any further trouble. If trouble continued, Jason and the others would lose their money. If trouble stopped, they'd receive it back. Because of the likely possibility that trouble was going to persist, with the unbelieving Jews likely to continue stirring up the people against Paul, Paul and his companions had no choice but to leave Thessalonica and thus Acts 17.10 tells us that the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. In Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, he wrote of the persecution that the church was enduring for their faith and how they had received the word in much affliction. We see an example of the affliction and persecution they faced here in Acts 17. But in Paul's letters to this church, Paul held out the hope of Christ's return to hearten and to help them endure it. And it's the same for the church today. As believers are hated and persecuted, and as they come under attack for their faith individually and as a whole as the church, like the Thessalonians, it should, it should remind us to look up and to realize that this world is not our home and that our Savior's coming back to catch us away and take us home to heaven. And it could be today, as Paul wrote, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Thank you again for tuning in to Transformed by Grace. 
We appreciate your prayer support and the financial gifts. The purpose and mission of the Berean Bible Society is to help you understand the whole counsel of the Word of God. For more information, visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org or give us a call at 262-255-4750. Or if you prefer, write us at the Berean Bible Society, P.O. Box 756, Germantown, Wisconsin, 53022. Now until next time, may you be transformed by God's grace.